Welcome to WEHC 19.7, and you're tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock, and we're so glad that you're with us on this day. Carly, I'm like, the year is going by really, really quickly, and I'm thinking, golly, we're already in the first quarter of the year, and it is zipping by. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm anticipating spring. I know. I definitely am too. Um, a couple of the trees in our neighborhood have started to bloom and that's very exciting. <laughs> yes. All my daffodils are out and uh, I've just been taking them in as they come because you never know what the weather's going to be if it's going to kill them. Like yesterday, they were all bowed down where they've yeah. been standing so erect the day before. So I thought, ah, I'm going to take the rest of them in and just enjoy them for the few minutes because outside they're not going to do do so well. Yeah. Well, it's good to talk about some fun things and some uh, soft things because, Carly, I don't know if you know it, but uh, I met the guy that edits some of our shows and uh, I met him on campus and uh, he, he said we did a really good job. I was surprised hearing from a young person, a young black male saying that he liked what we were talking about. And so that was uh, that was that was exciting to hear because I think sometimes what we talk about is hard or difficult, yeah. or not necessarily what people want to talk about, but it is so what we need to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think on our last show, we talked a little bit about anti-racism, uh, anti-racist feminism and, and that kind of stuff. And we kind of moved and shifted into some abolitionist feminist movement. And we want to talk a little bit more about that. And we hope that I think Carly's got some definitions and I'm going to talk mostly from my lived experience, my epistemology, if you will. And I think she's got some definitions that she's going to share with us today as we begin our conversation. But um, I think it's important for us to to restate that we do talk from an intersectional feminist perspective, mm -hmm. and that's really what our show is about. So if you're one of those people that's listening and you think, can they talk about anything else? The answer is no. <laughs> this is what this show is about. <laughs> this is what this show is about. And we hope that you're enjoying it and, and we need some feedback and some comments and all those kinds of things. But just to kind of set the record straight, we're doing this and we're doing it primarily uh, from the premise of um, Sojourner Truth and her ability in the in the face of enslavement and all kinds of uh criminal activities that had happened to her, especially with her body, uh, just waking up one day after being promised freedom and not giving it, just waking up one day and deciding that she would walk to her freedom. And so we want to encourage women to do the same thing. Whatever has you bound, whatever you feel like there are systems of oppression or bondage is that you don't have to stay in them is one thing. And secondly, you don't have to wait for somebody to give you permission. Just walk. So hence, she walks. But anyway, I just wanted to say that because I think, Carly, our subject matter sometimes is a little hard. And uh, But we wanted to, to let our listeners know that it is intentional that we talk about things like anti-racism, that we talk about uh, feminists, that we talk about Black feminists, that we talk about womanists, that we talk about transgender challenges and situations. And all of that is just what this is all about. So- Anyway, Carly, you got some definitions for us so that our listeners won't think that there they go again, ad nausea, you know. There's an article that we're going to get into today, so I'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the definitions that comes up when you, you know, search a little bit about abolitionist feminism is abolitionist feminism invites us to consider the world we want and how to organize to build it. 
Seeking out a world beyond prisons, abolitionist feminism focuses our attention on developing stronger communities and bringing about gender, race, and economic justice. I think as we talk a little bit also to add to that, just that whole thing about, you know, how so many things, you've got the criminal, you've got the victim, and and this abolitionist feminist is for both, you know, to kind of, it's kind of restorative to get us back to a place of humanity, hmm. because if you're not free, you can't be a feminist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because that's the opposite of what it is. If you're bound, you know, then you need to be free so that you can live into being a free woman. And right. in many cases, a free black woman. And so this whole uh, abolitionist piece that is tied to our criminal system, our our, our social justice system, and, and just how injustice it, it really is. So yeah, I think that's good that we can we can talk from from that frame. Yeah, and I think from what I've read so far, you know, it does seem like there's a big focus in abolitionist feminism about solutions, right? So being very solutions focused. And yes, we want to talk about the problems, but we also need to have ideas about how to fix these problems. And I think that's really empowering for a lot of people because it can feel a bit like sometimes we just, when we're talking about social justice or even um, restorative justice, we think a lot about, okay, well, we're going to talk about the issues here. We need to bring awareness to the issues. And that's 100% true. But then there's also an element of we have to have a plan, right? What are we going to do about this? How are we going to get where we want to go? And um, abolitionist feminism definitely seems to focus a lot on that. Yeah, I read an article and 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 I think the part that's scary to a lot of people is that it is really concentrating on incarceration mm -hmm. and the injustices that are a part of that and and how it affects you know women in particular with our own bodies and our own selves but our sons and our daughters and all the people that are that are a part of that and uh I read an article I think Angela Davis was part of writing this but it was um it said that um it, oh here it is it's the prison research education action project 1976 pamphlet and they said that there were three elements of abolition and 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 we won't talk about them in in detail but but i think it's worth mentioning it talked about uh moratorium decarceration and excarceration mm. and so you know they were really talking about the moratorium calling for the end of this prison system i was reading something the other day i wish i'd remembered it cuz i don't now but it was talking about the number of people in the United States that are incarcerated versus in other countries. It's unheard of. Yeah. The, the disparity is so big. And then when you further get down to the number of black people, black and brown people that are incarcerated versus the population of the black and black and brown people, it's so scary. So at some point, we do need to have a, a moratorium just to kind of stop and say, wait a minute, we don't want to keep doing this. We, there's got to be something else other than this current and this current uh, penal system. And then especially because of the privatization of it, it's now part of how we make money, how some we's make money in the United States af off of incarceration of other people, specifically brown and black people. Yeah, 100%. You're right. I think people don't want to talk about it because they don't really understand maybe a, a better system, right? Like, oh, well, we need prisons. And it's like, well, let's explore that a little bit, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a very difficult conversation to have. Um, and a lot of people are not really ready for that. But I, I like that you brought up the statistic about, you know, how many 
what percentage of our population is incarcerated because I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, Amer you know, the USA is a huge country. Of course, we're going to have more incarcerated people. But when we look at it per capita, right, or like, mm -hmm. you know, how many people we have versus how many are incarcerated compared to other countries. I mean, we are off the charts. And so there has to be some discussions about why that is. And, you know, you're exactly right. You know, our, our criminal justice system is far from perfect. <laughs> and so, you're you so know, kind. having conversations about that, right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when they say the moratorium on to stop building, because if you build the jails, you have to fill them. And there are some people that are in there for like just crazy, crazy things. And that's not going back all the way historically to Jim Crow and all of those pre-Jim Crow and, and after the Reconstruction and all of those kinds of times where Black people were still targeted and specifically Black men were greatly targeted because mm -hmm. they did not know they no longer served the function of being the field hand, et cetera, et cetera. So now what do we do with them? And if they can't do what we need them to do, and then we're afraid of them anyway, and we're afraid what they're going to do to our white women, blah, blah, blah. That whole story, if you will, that whole narrative is one of those reasons why it would be a good, a good thing to call for a moratorium on stop building these jails, because if you build them, you have to fill them. And I think, you know, when you look at just some people that I know who are incarcerated and they've been trying to, me as clergy, trying to get them on their team to get them a, a release, some of the things that they're in there for, I mean, they should really be out. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the, um, like the appeals system, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this argument of like, well, we have an appeal system. So people can appeal their sentencing and things like that. It takes months, if not years, to get in front of a judge to appeal things. I mean, that's just, so you're still in prison, you know? I mean, even if you are in the appeals process, you're. it takes so long to get anywhere. And then there's no guarantee, right, that anything's going to come of it. Right. And one of the things that I think is really good about the abolitionist movement is that they focus a lot on communal support. Because... We know through statistics and through studies and research that the more communal support a community has, the less the members of those communities find themselves incarcerated, right? Because, you know, a lot of people who commit quote unquote crimes, right, are doing so to meet a need. And so the more that we can meet those needs as a community, the less people feel that they have to to make those choices. Obviously, that is a very uh, broad 300,000 foot view of <laughs> that. But the more that we have that communal support, I think, is is also incredibly important to help meet those needs. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And, and that article that I was reading about the Prison Research Education Action Project in 1976, that pamphlet, one of the things they said that I think, and some might say 1976, yeah, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've not really, really moved away from that. And so um, one of the things that when they talk about uh, decarceration, they talk about getting the nonviolent offenders out of the jails. Mm-hmm. See, so it's kind of like a catch-22. You build the prisons and the 
detention centers, et cetera, et cetera. You hire the people to work there. Then you have to have the prisoners. So you put people in there for minor, minor infractions, you know, not, not even big things. And you, and they get stuck in the system because they don't have an attorney. They don't have anybody to work on their behalf. And so they're just languishing in there. And the more they're in there, the angrier they get. So they do something that you say, now you have to stay longer. And so that, that whole system is kind of messed up. And then when they talked about the ex-carceration, uh, they were talking about how to divert people away from interacting with law enforcement. Now, let me go on record to say, I'm not going to be one of the people that says all law enforcement is bad. I'm not going to say that, but I do, I will be one of the people that says that we need an overhaul because we've established a culture that is not conducive to all people. And we have seen that. We've seen it over and over and over again. We just saw it most recently in the Tyree Nichols case, you know, and, uh, a lot of people stayed away from that because those were African-American uh, police officers with an African-American. And so we didn't treat it the same way that we did George Floyd. It, it, Floyd. For a lot of people, people were afraid to touch it and it didn't seem as incredulous. And yet it's the same. So it's that culture of law enforcement that somehow needs to be altered and needs to be changed. And, you know, recently I got a speeding ticket and and I, I, I was blown away. Now I'm a law abiding citizen. I pay my taxes. I do all the right things. I go to work, you know, blah, blah, blah. I have insurance on my car, et cetera, but I'm driving down the road with a bunch of other cars and, uh, and, and the police officer comes behind it. And I start to move over because I think surely it's not me because all of our cars were moving together and I move over to the side and a police officer gets out in the small town in Tennessee. He gets out and he puts this 10 gallon black Stetson hat on his head, walks over there. He kind of brandishes his gun, but he's laying his hand on it, rubbing his hand on it. And he looks at me and he's first thing he says to me is, didn't I give you a ticket yesterday? So to me, I had immediately been profiled, immediately been profiled that he thought in a town that doesn't have a lot of black people that he had given me a ticket yesterday. So it looked like that was an intentional kind of thing. Long story short, because this is not about me, this is about our show. But long story short, you know, I appealed it. I went to court. Well, court was buffoonery as well. You had to stay in a room and then be called in to talk to the judge. And she's around the table with every police officer in the little town in your room, including some police officers behind me. So, you know, you're you're at a table with a judge and a stenographer and the chief of police is at the end of the table and all of the six or seven police officers that they have in that little town are sitting there as well. Yeah. So talk about intimidation. So I said all that to say now that was my story and I am quote unquote a law abiding citizen with insurance. Just imagine the other people who are not. And there were a lot of people there who were not. Yeah. And when I said that I felt that I had been profiled and I had called the chief of police prior to that, he said, well, that's not true. I looked and out of the 300 people that we've ever stopped in the last uh, year, uh, we've only stopped three black people. That was his statistics to say that I had not been profiled, didn't take into consideration what was said to me by that guy you know, et cetera. So, you know, this ex-incarceration, ex-carceration kind of thing is important. How do we keep what looks like chance occurrences with police officers? Like you're driving with a taillight. Do we say, do we use that communal system to help you get a taillight <laughs> or to help you get insurance or to help you do so yeah. that you're less likely to be involved with them? Well, and I think that that's a, a great point, right? And hopefully those community 
organizational structures would be able to help with that. Because we also think about like how much of this is tied to economics, right? And part mm-hmm. of the definition we read at the beginning did mention economic justice. You know, is your taillight out because you simply can't afford to fix it or you're driving yeah. an old clunker of a car, right? Right, um, right. How much of that is a is a part of that equation? The other thing that, you know, a lot of people have brought up when it comes to the prison system is if you're rich, justice looks very different for you. Oh, right? yes. You yes, can afford yes. to pay bail. You can afford the best lawyers and the best law teams. And again, there is so much um, of the economic justice piece that has to be a part of this equation. And I think it's often overlooked. There's a lot of conversations about like, oh, well, people just need to prioritize different things. And they just need to, you know, you know, work on their spending habits and such and such. And it's like, that's not how the world works, right? Not, <laughs> not at all. There's a I have a colleague, uh, Reverend Charlotte Williams in Chattanooga, and she every year, she does one of those bailout programs, mm. you know, and gets those women who are in there for a, a car infraction, but they've been in there for a year, 18 months because mm. they can't make bail, you know, mm. and, and and here's the thing in the town, I, I'll say the town I got stopped in Malsheim, Tennessee, and here's the, here's the town. Here's what the problem was. The ticket was $25. The court case, the court fees were 175 so I got a $200 ticket. So when I challenged them and they waived the, the ticket because they 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 just waived it because I challenged them, but I still had to pay $175 to keep that from going on my, t- on my case. So if I didn't have a, they said, well, when can you pay it? I said, now. They looked at me like I was crazy. Well, I was just bragging because I really needed a payment plan. <laughs> but I went ahead and I paid it. But look at all the other people who are connected to that system who may make an arrangement and can't keep the arrangement. And then it goes new court cost. And so it was just, I mean, it's just so unjust. And as you said, it's an economic injustice perspective. I found some statistics. These are a little old. They're 2016. But it kind of goes with what we said, Carly, earlier. It says that the United States incarcerates more people than any other country. This was 2016 with 2.2 million adults in prison or jail. And nearly 60,000 children under the age of 18 are also incarcerated in juvenile jails or prisons. And about 10,000 more children are held in adult jails or prisons. So, I mean, that right there, that's 2016. That's really, really, really scary. I know we're at 2023, but the statistics I'm sure have not changed. And if we were to update those, it would look very similar to the same thing. Yeah. And that juvenile piece really sticks out to me too, because we we know statistically through all the research that's been done, that people who are incarcerated tend to reoffend because Mm -hmm. that's just the way that the system works. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, both, you know, uh, like societal reasons, um, environmental reasons and interpersonal reasons. But, you know, think about kids who start out in the criminal justice system, right? I mean, the chances that they're going to reoffend later in life are astronomical. Right. Why are we starting them out on the right foot like that? You know, why are we not working to help them work through whatever brought them to this in the first place? Right. And it's like these are these are kids. These are kids who don't have a you know great grasp on the consequences of their actions. These are kids whose brains are not fully developed yet. They're very impulsive. Right. Why are we treating them as if they're adults? <laughs> you know, I don't. Right. Right. And and to try to take the race and the gender piece out of it is is uh, it you can't do it. 
Yeah. And and so that that I think for for from our perspective is 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 really relevant because you know there are people who are languishing in jails for traffic violations. There are people who've done things like you said economically that they just can't pay for. And it's a vicious cycle. I know a young girl who lost her job and so she could not get her tags renewed. So she was still driving to go to try to find a job while she was trying to get her tags renewed. She got stopped. She didn't have insurance on the car. She got stopped. They towed her car in. They let her go. They could have taken her, but they let her go. They took her car and then her car was was towed. And I think it's $50 a day for every day that it's in there. So if you don't have a job and you don't have insurance and you don't have your car, how are you ever going to get your car to get back, to get a job, to get tags, to get all of that kind of stuff? So I saw her the other day. She had current tags. I don't know if she has any of the other things, but she she was trying to, her dad had gotten her car out. And I think by the time he got it out, it's like $600. Yeah. He didn't have the $600. So, you know, how how do we create a system where people are free? And then how do we do it from a feminist perspective? You know, what makes this whole abolitionist piece? What makes it, wh- why do we call it, you know, aboli- abolition, uh, abolition feminist? Why do we, why do we look at it? How is it so closely linked to feminism. And and I think that's one of the things that that we don't often think about. And I don't know if your article covered any of that or not, but I think it's important for us to to look and and to know that it's one of those things that we need to take the lead in because it's so harmful to women and to women's children and to women's husbands and to women's partners and all of those kinds of things. Because you know, if we're looking for the world we want, the world we want is a world where people are free, where all people are free and nobody is unjustly incarcerated. And I guess we would ask the question, how is incarceration working for us as a country? What is it doing? Is it solving anything? Even like in murder cases and the cases where people are, they don't even ever solve the murder case. So there was this guy and I believe he did it, but he was in jail for five years before his trial. Five years. Uh, That's 100% correct, right? And I think, (laughs) you know, when people talk about abolitionists, you know, the first thing that always is part of the conversation is what about the violent crimes, right? And that is a very difficult and nuanced conversation that we cannot have here because we're not, I'm certainly not equipped to have Yeah, me me neither, me neither. But I will say, you know, the percentage of crimes that are violent are far fewer than a lot of the other crimes that we're talking about on this show. Um, And back to your question about, you know, why, where does the feminist piece come in? To me, it's sort of twofold. The first side is that intersectional piece that we've talked about before. If you are a feminist and you're for gender justice, you also have to be for criminal justice. You also Mm -hmm. have to be for, um, economic justice. You also have to be for racial justice, right? I mean, like you have to work across the board because it impacts everyone. I mean, it's all interconnected, right? Right. The other thing, the other place that that feminist piece comes in is a lot of the women that are writing about abolitionist feminism are writing for the perspective of um, women and non-binary folks and transgender folks within the prison system, right? So, women in prison, transgender people in prison, and um, non-binary people in prison. And what needs they have, what rights they have that are being violated, um, and making sure that those things are are 
taken care of. Um, and then also looking at what economic or what um, community support we can have for our communities to help protect those people from ending up in prison, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's kind of part of that conversation there. And, and I think I, I, there was um, uh, an article that I read, I'm gonna see if I can find it, but it it was defining abolition feminism and it was saying um, that it used to be called carceral feminism and that it was really um, looking at, it emerged out of mainstream the women's liberation movement and developed in the late 20th and 21st century. But what they were talking about was looking at how do we address the gender-based violence? Mm -hmm. You know, even when we perpetrate, when we imprison the perpetrators, are we really doing anybody any, any justice by doing it? Especially in, in cases like, you know, intimate partner and child abuse and sexual harassment and hate crimes and all those other things. It says when we do that, we ignore this, the, the, the systemic injustices that contribute to that form of violence. What, how did they, how did it get there in the first place? Right. And I think that's a very important conversation to have. I also think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, even if quote unquote justice has been served, right? So there is an intimate partner violence situation, you know, uh, he goes to prison. Well, what are, where does that leave her? And if she has kids, right? Where mm -hmm. does that leave them? Because maybe that was the breadwinner of their family. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now she's got to go to work and she's got to provide for her kids all by herself. And then that relates to a whole other set of circumstances. Right. So are we like you said, are we solving the problem? Because in a certain, you know, obviously he needs to not be around her. That's, you know, important. Mm -hmm. But, where, you know, can we dig a little bit deeper there? Because just putting him in a prison is not really solving the problem. It's basically the first step. Right. We need to separate him from her. But then what? Like you said, how did we get here? But also, where do we go now? And I think there's so much of like, you know, people just get put in prison and then that's it. That problem is considered to be solved. And it really isn't at all. So what what do what do we do in cases like that? Because, you know, and we're looking at it from an intersectional perspective. So we're looking at it at, you know, race, class, gender, all of those things are all part of this system mm -hmm. that keeps people incarcerated for extended period of times and primarily brown and black people, yes. you know, uh, that don't have the economic power to be able to do some avoiding of the jail or get lesser sentencing. And then that's not even talking about the structural and systemic racism because the judges are primarily white men who come with their own biases. And so when they look out there, we've got a judge that, that they say, and I don't know, I haven't been part of that system, but We've got a judge in our area that they say daughter is a high school offender. The judge is white. The daughter is white. She's on drugs. She plays sports. You know, she does all the things. She keeps getting charged. People keep finding drugs and she keeps he keeps using the system to keep her out of jail or out of a juvenile system. And meanwhile, then these other people who do things like there was a young black girl who was a straight A student who it was during that time when they were having on, on TV, they were talking about hit a teacher or something. You remember that little craze they had not too long ago where they were hitting teachers? Mm -hmm. Well, she got in a fight with someone at school, a young girl at school, and she inadvertently hit the teacher. But they charged her because that whole thing was going on at that time with hitting a teacher, kicked her out of school, put her in, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then here, the same judge that's doing this, his daughter, is getting caught with drugs and alcohol all the time and is being yeah. sent back. So 
you know, the unfairness of the system is what right. I think. You know, when we're looking at it from a feminist perspective and intersectional feminist perspective, it's so unfair. I think it's important for us to to kind of look at that. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, people will make the argument of, well, since it's a juvenile offense, like it's not really that important. You know, they can like get it removed from their records or they can get their records sealed. And it's like, yeah, but that's not the point. The point is that you've put them through all of this in the first place. And you've not solved the problem. And yes, they can get their records sealed, but probably not before they're applying to go to college. There's a lot of impacts there. And, and um, there's a lot of shame and other yes. things that go with that, that whole right. process. Yeah. We are coming to the close of our time, but I think um, it would be a really great idea for us to pull on um, a guest. I actually know of someone who used to work in the prison system as a social worker. Um, yeah. and might have some interesting perspectives about this. So I would be happy to reach out to them and see if they would like to join us to continue this conversation. Um, because I think they'll have an interesting perspective about, um, you know, being working within that system, right? Because prison social workers, their job is to help the incarcerated with resources, help them get connected to attorneys and other programs that can help them. So I think um, that would be a really cool conversation to have. Yeah. And I think uh, good as well, Carly, because I think we've talked a little bit about recidivism and what we've just kind of touched on that vicious cycle or circle mm -hmm. that keeps people attached to the system, which part of the, the abolition feminist movement is to get people away from that law enforcement system, that whole system. How do you divert and keep people from being a part of it. And then now you're your person that, that you're going to have come and, and talk with us, sees it firsthand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's their job is to try to, to fix that or get that ready. And, and it's so improbable, if not impossible. Well, this has been an excellent conversation and hopefully we'll be able to continue this kind of talking about this going forward. Cause I think this is a very um, important thing to talk about when we talk about restorative justice. So thank you all so much for being with us today and we'll continue this conversation going forward. If you have any questions, let us know. Um, but otherwise we will see you again next week. Bye everyone.